0: My, my goal for 2016 is to be more like Kelsey Hightower. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> good luck.
1: It's time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast that helps you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and organization for maximum DevOps awesomeness. I'm your host, Bridget Kremhout, at Bridget Kremhout on Twitter. Arrested DevOps is brought to you by Tenth Magnitude, a company that figures if you're listening to this podcast, you must be pretty cool. Tenth Magnitude empowers businesses to better collaborate across teams and achieve IT transformation using cloud. They enable customers to innovate, automate, and accelerate by leveraging the power of Microsoft Azure. You can find out more at ArrestedDevOps.com slash Tenth Magnitude. This episode is also brought to you by Datadog, a monitoring tool that helps bridge the gap between operations and dev teams. Datadog brings together system metrics, changes, alerts, and events from over 70 common infrastructure tools, such as Chef, Docker, and AWS, so that Dev and Ops teams share their key data and alerts in a single place and collaborate on issues in real time. Datadog is available for a free 14-day trial at ArrestedDevOps.com slash Datadog. Today, we're t- we have two great guests. We're talking with Kelsey Hightower, who's got a lot to say in this platform space, whether it's in 140-character tweet storms or at every conference you wish you were at. Kelsey, want to tell our listeners more about yourself?
2: Uh, I'm Kelsey, and I look like an engineer. Uh, Just kidding. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I have a background ranging from, you know, sysadmin through software developer, um, with a lot of management thrown in between. Um, And these days, I kind of focus on um, helping people see the world the way I see it. You know, I think everyone has a perspective, and I kind of like some of the trends that are emerging around, you know, platforms, um, distributed computing, and this idea of just reusing uh, these things that we've been building for the last couple of decades and standardizing on them.
1: Great. Awesome. Thank you, Kelsey. And we're also here with returning podcast guest, Andrew Clay Schaefer, with whom I have the pleasure and privilege of working these days. Andrew, what should our listeners know about you in this platform realm?
0: I don't know. (laughs) Do do I have to tell you everything? I don't know. Where Where should we start? I'd rather just get into it. If if someone uh if someone wants to know more about me then little idea.
1: Little <laughs> idea you. on Twitter.
0: Engage engage with my brand. That's all <laughs> I got today.
1: All right, awesome. Well then I'll I'll uh tell you that uh Schaefer has spent a lot of time in this automate all of the things meme. Um so Andrew, when it, did it things... Seemed,
0: it seemed like a good idea at the time.
1: <laughs> right. So when did things start shifting from this notion of just automating every single thing you do to all this talk of, you know, platforms?
0: Well, I think personally, that it wasn't a moment when it all of a sudden just switched. It was seeing the patterns of, of success across many dif- different projects and, and many different, uh, you know, kind of scales of, of both project and infrastructure and organization to to realizing that in most cases, what you're trying to automate has as big of impact, the architectures that you're working with has, has as big of impact on the outcome as the fact that you're trying to automate it at all. And that there's things that you can basically entrench as bad practices with your automation that are gonna cause you more problems which are worth revisiting and eliminating.
2: Yeah, so I guess I'll, I'll I'll jump in as well on the on the platform side. Um, yeah, I think Andrew sums it up pretty well. It's like usually when we find good patterns, those become foundational pieces. And, you know, I guess platform is just the right word, word to use there. So I guess over time when we do find, you know, there's only so many ways that you can do certain things, especially at the lower levels, that it just doesn't make sense for people to rediscover them over and over again. So at some point, whether it's a standard library with a programming language, or it's a platform for infrastructure, you kind of get to the point where some things just move into the standard library. Um, not everything is a good fit there. You know, a lot of people want the platform to do everything for them, which I think is probably the biggest challenge. And just like a language of standard library, putting everything in a standard library usually causes some friction where people think that's the only thing available is what they see in their standard library. And sometimes you're going to need those third-party packages, you know, depending on what you're doing. Maybe you are really, truly a unique snowflake, and doing something truly new. And at that point, you're going to have to probably develop your idea outside of the standard. And then maybe over time, it finds its way into the standard for everyone else to use.
0: So I, I think there's standards and there's patterns, and those are slightly different ideas. And they're slight—I mean, they're related, obviously. Uh, but but standards aren't always good patterns for one thing. Um, And then I'd also add that, and this is a quote from someone else, but that I think what we're actually seeing, what we're participating in is this general trend for complexity to move up the stack. And that as we, as an industry, we, as a, as a body of practice, as practitioners recognize these patterns, and then we start to abstract them in the way that we can leverage those, those underlying patterns without actually re-implementing them every time. And that, that gives us the ability to, to move the, the problem up the stack and solve like some other thing that creates value for our business, ostensibly.
2: Yeah, and I think all of these things are in perspective of the user too, right? Like, you know, if you're fresh out of school or you're brand new to the industry, you don't even know where to look for these things, right? You kind of, you see some things that are offered to you, you see services, you see these platforms, but you don't really know what your problem is. You usually may not have enough experience to make that decision. And I think that what delays the adoption of some of these things, whether they look like patterns or they're standards, it's really blurry, right? From the outside looking in, right? You don't you don't have enough experience to say, hey, this is just a pattern, or this has moved to this standard phase.
0: Absolutely, I I think I would add a, a little bit, and I don't know how much we want to go on this on this tangent, but when you when you go into some organizations where they've they've essentially frozen. Their their tech their tech stack in Amber, like a decade ago, and inside of those organizations, in some sense, they have less experience with some of this new stuff that someone fresh from school might, especially if they've been paying attention to things like GitHub and you know the things that we actually mostly take for granted in our circle probably. So it's it's interesting to see. I don't I don't think that that limitation to evaluate the technology is totally unique based on the number of years of experience someone has, but there's definitely this this band of, of experience and perspective that allows people to make better decisions. Because I think, and this kind of goes back to the original question about going from automating all the things to the way that I think more about the structures and patterns now, and that is that on face, when you don't have some of these experiences, you haven't got those scars then, then two things look like they're basically equal. They, they think you think they're kind of equivalent solutions. When in reality, one of them is far superior, or or at least is going to cause you less problems. Not that any any tech is is perfect, right? Like this is the the joke about the today's best practices or tomorrow's like horrible legacy system. But but the things that you see that your ability to evaluate those two and they appear to be equal, is is going to change as you get more experience.
1: Well, and I think to Kelsey's point, too, like people who maybe have had that opportunity to step outside the organization that they're in and even talk to people at other organizations, um, go to meetups, whatever, might have a different perspective, both from the person who's been doing the legacy thing forever and the new graduate,
2: right?
0: Absolutely. I think we all have different perspectives. That's kind of the... That's the beauty of it.
2: Yeah, it's very much
0: situational, right? Like um, I'm in the process of buying
2: another house. And when you go house hunting, you know, depending if you want to live in the, on the hills, in the city, in the suburbs, the same style of house usually is built slightly different. number of bedrooms, the size, the foundation given to where you're at. And I think that's the missing part of most of the discussions around platform. You know, like my given situation is that I get one user per hour I can almost use anything for my platform, right? And it makes all other logical discussions relevant. But if you, or you may be on the other end of that extreme where I get a billion requests per second. And you know some things that just don't matter to the rest of the world just don't matter to you in your particular case. And I think those, we don't have enough time to do those at conferences and our talks. And a lot of times as engineers, you don't get enough time to evaluate the full situation before making a decision, right? It's like, look, we need something by Friday. You're like, all right, by Friday, this is all I can tell you, and we're gonna start here and 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 see how it goes.
0: Yeah, I think I think the dimension of context is often lost in a lot of the discussions. Uh, just basically to re reinforce and echo your point that if you have if you have a specific problem, then then there might be a specific solution um, that might be very different than what a, a general solution might be trying to accomplish, and that if you have built something that's purpose. I mean, you're seeing what I what I consider the platforms that are emerging are basically taking and distilling lots of lessons that people learn building their their kind of one-off bespoke platforms, right? If you look at the things that evolved at a place like Netflix, uh, at a place like Google, at a place like, you know, any, anywhere where there have, I don't know if we want to go on this tangent, but just a quick tangent, I really think these are all, parts of a saint of a like there's a bunch of buzzwords we throw around, right? Microservices, platform as a service, DevOps, continuous delivery. I feel like these are all aspects of, a, of a, the same phenomenon, which is the, the patterns that emerge from these high performing organizations that were delivering uh, services that were highly available and also rapidly changing. If you, don't, if you don't need to be highly available, if you don't need to be at scale and you don't need to be rapidly changing, then you might not need all these other optimizations. But if you want all of those qualities, then you're going to converge on something that starts to look suspiciously like a platform as a service. Um, your, your opinions about some aspects of that might differ from organization to organization, but you're going to have to have those qualities to get those results.
2: I mean, I guess it boils down, when it works, it works, right? You know what I mean? Like if you pick something and everyone else says it just is not the best thing to do, but it actually works for you. I mean, at some point.
0: The the way that I think, I think this is slightly different because, like, not everyone has the same definition of works, right? Like, from from the context, and we already kind of talked about a little bit of context, organizations have different levels of what I'll call thresholds of pain and what they're willing to put up with. And so there's lots of stuff that people think, quote, unquote, works which I think is actually not working at all. Uh,
2: yeah, but, it, but it's relative, right? You know what I mean? Like in that, in that situation, you could go in and say, this doesn't work, and everyone will look at you and say, we're actually comfortable in this. And the they, fact that you change is something to be, that's better in your terms could make them uncomfortable. And at the end of the day, as, we, as long as we have human beings making these you know, decisions still – it so, sometimes it comes down to that, right? I just feel different when I so, do.
0: It. So the the quote that I've adapted to kind of articulate how I feel about this scenario is a is a Tolstoy quote that says that that all all happy families are alike, and all unhappy families are unhappy for a different reason, right? And and they're still families, like they and they'll probably still do lots of things that are you know familial, if you will, but. There, there's tons of things that people do that are very different and totally dysfunctional. And if you look at these patterns that have emerged in these highly functional organizations, then they all start to look very similar.
1: You know, I think that this is, this is a good place to point out that these are a lot of tangents, and this is so interesting that I don't want to stop it, but I also want to bring things a little bit back towards the platform discussion, um, just because, I mean, we have, um, Andrew was, you know, standing at a workshop in D.C., like live coding, pushing Spring Boot stuff to Cloud Foundry. I went to a workshop that uh, Kelsey did in um, at OSCON in Amsterdam where he's, like, you know, doing all of the Kubernetes. And so I feel like, let's bring it back down to, like, let's detangle and demystify some of all of this stuff, like this containers, microservices, schedulers, orchestration. Like some of our listeners are trying to piece through, you know, trying to make their way through all of the word salad and try to figure out what, what of all of that stuff takes me to the place Andrew's talking about where things work and things are better. Um, I know there's a lot there, so I'm just kind of thinking maybe it would be nice to get a little bit of perspective, like, you know, maybe Kelsey start, Andrew jump in, agree, disagree, but, like, what of all this stuff? Like, I feel like last year everyone wants to talk about containers. This year everyone wants to talk about how will they, you know, put all of those pieces together. Like, what should people be paying attention to?
2: I think most people have gotten, you know, it depends on where you are on the spectrum. Like, if you do not care about managing infrastructure, that's not your job you're just going to find the platform that lets you do what you want for some people that's heroku right look i just want to write this app and deploy it there and be finished like everything else is noise right in that world but it is very much down to your situation and your your personal situation like if you want to actually manage and tweak knobs on low-level infrastructure let's say you sat down independently of this salad right and you decided that you're hungry you need to decide what you want to eat you know what i mean Don't go to restaurants and decide that they sell you something that makes you feel appetized. You need to kind of make a decision you want to do, roughly so. And I think what will happen is when you start to survey what's available, you're going to have to make compromises in order to avoid reinventing the wheel too much. Right. And I think that is probably the reality of it. No matter what we say or what platforms we all favor, at the end of the day, you're going to have to make those two decisions. Are you willing to compromise on your design and what you understand at this given point in time and adopt something that exists? Or are you willing to take a, one of these things and use a fraction of it and build on top and reinvent the wheel to your liking?
0: That seems, that seems pretty reasonable. I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with anything you just said. You basically have to look at what you have available. You have to look at your context. You have to match them up and then figure out how you want to fill in the gaps.
2: Yeah, and I think the, the, the reason for all the debate is that there is a lot of emotional, you know, connection people make with tools, which is kind of silly in a lot of ways, right? Like,
0: that's, I, because, I, that's because everything in tech, even though it looks like it's about logic and reason, is really about fashion and tribalism.
2: Yeah, we, we, <laughs> you see that a lot, right? Like if you learn to program, let's say, Bash, and you're really good at it, so you feel that Bash is your comfort zone, you will attempt to attack all problems with your, your your tool belt, right? If you're Batman, you use your utility belt. You know I mean? That's just what you do. I and resemble I think,
1: all this remark.
2: <laughs> and I and I think a lot of people that ends up clouding conversations. So you go into a new conversation and you're always thinking of an opportunity to use your existing skill set and you're gonna try to make that shit work regardless, right? And if it doesn't work you kind of start feeling weird, right? You start to do very unnatural things to try to prove your point or why the whole project should be compromised to fit your skill set.
1: Wait, don't they say that people can write C in
0: any language?
2: You can write bad code in any language. It's probably more uh, <laughs> where, where we're at.
0: Yeah. I, in, I mean, in some ways this is more about the hammer and the nail because you have this one hammer and you're going to just start hitting things with it. and I think it's a combination of that and then this, this level of abstraction. Like, you can literally do everything in C. Arguably, you could do everything in Assembler. But those, those levels of abstraction that are available to you, the, the things that you're going to need to rebuild to accomplish some of the things that people want to accomplish now, like, that might be the right tool for, for a lot of scenarios. It's probably not the fastest path to victory for a, a, a lot of the things people want to do that, you know, like you said, I just want to have a Rails app. Heroku is probably a good choice.
2: Yeah, and then the other notion of this too is that none of these platforms actually do everything you think you want to do. And I think the part where you think you want to do is very critical because a lot of people make up situations that don't need to exist, right? They're forcing this, this thing on the platform. And I think since you have that bit of friction, that there's still missing pieces from everything that's out there and available, that it causes people to jump dip a little prematurely, right? It's like this winners take all, I got this platform, like Heroku, for instance, but it doesn't do this one thing, and now I'm going to jump back to rolling and reinventing the entire wheel for this one fraction of thing that I'm missing. So, a lot of people have the zero sum game in their mind.
1: And th- this is actually interesting because it brings up that, you know, what Kelsey was alluding to earlier about the whole opinionated and unopinionated, and then what Andrew was saying about hammers and nails actually reminded me of his tweet about tree houses. And, I, I like that analogy, um, but it also, like, it, does, it doesn't cover every all the ground, obviously. But is some of it just, like, some people want to be building stuff, and that's what they want to be doing? And then other people want to be using stuff and have it exist? Or is it more nuanced than that?
0: I, I think when you, you look at my Twitter feed and you see things like the, the infographic that you're talking about, I mostly just want to troll Kelsey Hightower. <laughs> that's, that's all. That's my main motivation there. Um, but when I think that there's there's a certain creative aspect to programming, and if you're programming systems, you you get that adrenaline rush just like if you're programming apps. And and so the people that have got that kind of fixation with building systems, and and you know I consider myself one of them. Then like you feel powerful. I mean, going back, I, I've given some talks lately about just the Evolution of my own thinking the, the first time you've, you've figured out okay like I can configure a server to do whatever I want with Puppet Like you feel powerful, right? Like if you came from a world where you're used to typing do it 5.sh on the on a command line <laughs> and All of a sudden now, now you can do one server however you want and you can do a hundred of them exactly the same way and now you got Amazon I, I did a, a deployment of rails building rails on Amazon web services Uh, live coded at the um, Ruby conference in Salt Lake City Utah in like 2008 right it's like that was powerful and and then you do that a few times and then the the analogy I've been using and I didn't get sued for Disney even though I gave this presentation at Disney is um is like from Fantasia where it's it's you, you got this spell book and you made you made a broom and that broom started pouring water and then pretty soon, like, the brooms are their own problem, and there's water everywhere, and you're just trying to figure out, like, how to manage that. And so then you, you start adding glue, and, and you know, I've got to orchestrate all these brooms and, you know, somehow connect them to my database or whatever. And you just, <laughs> just kind of just go through this progression where you figure, okay, like, there has to be a, another layer to these abstractions, and I think that's, that's the layer that we're seeing emerge right now.
1: Are we sure it's not just abstractions all the way down?
0: Of course it is, and that's <laughs> that's what I, that's the point I was making initially is the complexity is moving up the stack, and so we're going to hide more and more of this of this complexity. All the words, the buzzword salad, orchestration, whatever, is just representing like a new layer to the to the abstractions.
2: Yeah, and I also think there's
0: a bit of people wanting to
2: protect this world of. Um and it's not quite lock in, right? There's always this fear about lock in and you know there's plenty of discussions around various forms of lock in. But I think people are really nervous about this idea of yielding, you know, this fully a thing that works. Let's say there was actually a service that worked hundred percent. You give it your app and it just
0: worked hundred percent.
1: Wait, this That's, is software, right? I mean this is running on well, computer.
0: Well well,
2: you know,
0: like 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 <laughs> playing. And right? we're talking we're talking about magics and spells here. <laughs> well, this is, yeah,
2: it can work. work. But just say like even i think heroku is a very close example right heroku makes a lot of compromises to do a really decent job for most cases right like you you shove your stuff there and you just shield it away from a lot and i think that scares a lot of people because it's like now you feel that there's a control element that's lost right if we do this long enough we'll never be able to do this on our own right i'll never be able to buy a server i'll never be able to install software and configure it so People really want to keep that around. And I think there's good reason for it in some cases, like Richard Stallman, you know, it's like, hey, if we all lose the ability to do this, you're always going to be renting or or paying outlandish prices because it will be no longer feasible Uh, element of people that are out there that are trying to prevent that from happening. Even though we want that convenience, we want that convenience on our own terms. And I think it's probably slowing down the progress of platforms because we have to appease people that want to look under the hood
1: isn't there an element of fear there too? Like if, I mean, I got to say as a, you know, curmudgeonly system of yore, like the idea of not being able to configure it and not being able to fix it when it breaks, which people will expect you to fix it, even if, you know,
0: like... I, I would take it a little bit farther, and I would say that it's... That some of the fear actually, actually comes from the fact that they've attached their their tribal identity to their tasks, right? And so it's not its not just that, oh, I'm going to lose the ability to do this thing. It's that thing is me, right? The, the ability to do that thing is what defines me, my job, like all these parts about how my own self-concept of the universe is.
2: And trust too, right? Like I think you said it earlier, isn't this software? So we know that it's going to break in some way, and we may not think it should break in the way that it's breaking, right? Like. I can do a much better job than Heroku. I can achieve, you know, eight nines. If you just let me do it, I can do eight nines with a single data center in my backyard, right?
0: <laughs> so that, that, that's the, that's the, that's the Dunning kruger kicking in right there. Yeah, Is this
1: data center it. in your backyard? Because you're in Portland, right? Isn't there like snow right now?
2: Yeah, so the cooling will be cheaper <laughs> <laughs> this week. I think, you, I think we're still working through all of that right now I think a lot of people are are conflating this idea of freedom and my ability to own and run my own stuff where if you think about the platforms we build they'll be much easier if we did not have to support 80,000 install targets right like in, in the case of Cloud Foundry the fact that you have to have Bosch is so you can have people look I got these servers and I'm in Amazon and I'm in Azure it's like you have to support all of those things but if you took that away it will simplify even Bosch to this extent where we don't waste as much engineering time there. So we still have this element, even for the platforms we're shipping that do a lot of good things. There's still unnecessary complexity to appease people that want to run it on their own or on their own terms.
0: Yeah. And I, and I would, I mean, it's interesting you brought up the analogy of Bosch, but I think that this is something that replays itself every so often. Right. And and so when you look at the, I mean, different layer different layers of the stack. So, when you went from everyone writing everything in assembler to people having C code, there were, there were, there was a conversation about how we're, we're losing control, right? Like this abstraction is so high level, like I don't even know what's going on in these registers anymore. Right. And, and this, similar, similar sort of idea where it's like, Oh, well, if we just had one, if we just had one architecture, like we wouldn't need all these complicated compilers to compile our C. Right. And, and, or whatever like it's just kind of a the natural evolution of these cycles of technology as things get adopted and, and innovated and created that, that I think it's inevitable like you don't fight the future you just have to you just have to figure out where you want to live inside of it
2: yeah I think I think you're, you're exactly right so we're still on this time scale right like there's stuff from the 70s probably still running in a lot of places Definitely they, still running. Yeah, and they, <laughs> I had
1: meetings in the I had meetings in recent weeks with customers who are still running things from the 70s and they're not planning on stopping.
2: <laughs> right. So we're we're supporting all these things in parallel. So I, I I guess that's also a thing that kind of slows adoption in some cases, where it's like, look, I have stuff on a 30, 40-year timeline that you need to either tell me what part of that timeline you can support what you're offering, or you get ambitious where you try to take your tech that was built today and stretch it back to those use cases that were valid 30 years ago. And I think that also adds complexity to the thing you're building, right? And if you're in a business to make money, a lot of times you're forced to stretch backwards in time to also solve those problems, right? Because it's not just Greenfield, right? That's not reality.
0: Absolutely. I think the way my mental model of this works is that you see everything in terms of these sedimentary layers, and and the, the layers don't go away. And, in fact, if you look at the finances, of the of the businesses, the top line for the mainframe business grew every year for like the last decade, right? And and those those deployments aren't going away anytime soon, but they're there. On top of them, you see the client server model. You know now we're kind of in this another phase of the the cloud model, which is actually accelerating based on the stuff we're talking about, and that that consumption will increase. All the greenfield will we'll eventually subsume. I think that the like each layer ends up being more and more quote-unquote nodes in the network, but that bottom layer isn't going away, maybe ever.
2: And I think what we're at now is that some of these things are allowing us to switch out what's underneath a little easier. So I think that's the true benefit of containers, right? And if you strip away the hype, it allows us to at least be able to swap out what's behind us going forward, right, so whether it's Any, not.
0: Well, let, let's stop, and I think this is interesting to analyze because what what containers actually represent, at least the way people are excited about them right now, to me is that, is that Linux kind of won and became this ubiquitous um, standard. So like this thing that got standardized there is that is that syscall interface, right, to the kernel. And it gives you the ability to, to like package these fully dependent uh, deployable artifacts and then, and then move them around. But that doesn't necessarily backport Linux onto those, all those mainframe applications. Like you're not also going to be able to package up like that bottom layer of sediment.
2: Well, I mean, so I think it's really more of that. You're right. None of these things will go away and replace everything before it, but the new legacy that we create, I think will be easier to deal with 40 years from now, right? 30 years from now where these container things become the new legacy. It's, I think Docker is a good example. Docker has changed slight parts of that process of building the container, what it actually is, multiple times over a short life cycle, But the user didn't really have to do much to, uh, to adopt the new standard, right? It's like just rebuild it, and you were just deployed to the new version. For Whereas now you're dealing with so many low-level things that are just in your face that you have to make so many decisions about right. when and where.
0: You know, not to belittle, like, that iteration, but I I actually think that the majority of that benefit came from the fact that there's, like, the Linux kernel, right? Like, that's the substrate that people are on top of, and so as long as that is there and you can count on that, then you can do all sorts of things on top of it.
1: Um, Sure. I mean, you're right, Andrew, but cgroups and namespaces have been around for a while, and what Docker did was make it, a lot more accessible to the average developer, ops engineer, whatever, who maybe never played with zones or never touched jails?
0: Yes and no. I mean, this kind of goes to the point Kelsey's making. So what was made accessible is is actually using those things. Uh, what was not made accessible is like the mental model of how those things actually work, right? Like maybe you know some subset of the Developer the actually core developers on docker interested in that technology, and they're exposed to it But for the most part going back to my original statement that the complexity moves up the stack that is hidden from you from these abstractions So what's actually being iterated on is that abstraction?
2: Right, but I think that's the transition from pattern to standard right so whether we believe this will be the end game I don't think it is it's just the beginning, but I think what happens is that some people say, "Look, these things work in a lot of use cases. Let's put an API on it, and it's a pseudo standard at this point, right? You can just say, you know, you can say Docker in this case, and that brings a lot of meaning with it, right? We're not saying it's complete, Andrew. Don't,
0: if, don't no. Go. If if you liked if you liked it, you should have put an API on it.
2: I, think I was just like thinking
0: someone, that <laughs> someone needs to make a song about that and like do the little dance with the yeah.
2: Well, that's that's how we use these things, right? Is is an API? And no, Kelsey I, I you have,
1: Kelsey has a really good point, too, when he says, this is just the beginning. Do I, do I dare say the U word? And I don't mean Unix, but um, what about unikernels?
2: I don't know, man. Like <laughs> we, we, When we say unikernels, at the end of the day, it's like, so the thing is, when we say containers, we're not even saying that. Because containers mean nothing without the API, right? Period. Like, the reason why people are using containers in this way, what they really mean is Docker's API. Full stop. Done deal. And if you're on, uh, if you're in the joint world, you're talking about those APIs that allow you to actually do something useful. So the problem with unikernels is you're just swapping one backend containment or whatever technology for another. At the end of the day, people are still going to say, "Well, how the hell do I deploy it?" And if you say, "Well, we're going to revert back to SSH and F- FTP." And it's like, "Dude, no! Like, you can no longer introduce no. a new." Attainment boundary without an API, so that's where we start.
0: I agree. I I don't think that unikernels are are usable until they're basically put into these fabrics, just like the platforms are. And 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 tooling also to around creating the actual. Um, so there, there's a interview with Brian Cantrill that is actually quite good, and there's a a, a slight. Digression where he talks about the the unikernels, and he he basically makes this argument that unikernels are exokernels, which isn't technically... I don't think that that's equivalent and that everyone would have to become um, a kernel developer to, to use them. I, I don't think that's the case at all. Like, I don't see unikernels ever being useful until you have a similar level of uh, tooling that you have with Docker right now that gives you the ability to abstract... Most of that away from uh, the quote-unquote average developer. So, so that
1: so APIs, like Kelsey just said, I think you're agreeing with each other again. Well, so uh, I mean, this uh, is not much of a cage match, guys. I'm just so here, saying. I, I didn't know we
0: were signing up for a cage match. <laughs> Me And Andrew agree on a lot of things. I think
2: a lot of times, like so, I, I tend to delve delve into sometimes like Kubernetes, for instance. Right? There's a romanticism with Kubernetes and this low-level abstraction. Is you should not be using Kubernetes directly for all of your needs. It makes zero sense, right? And Andrew is living in this world where you're higher up. There's more definition. There's more. De- there's more um, opinions. And in that world of look, stop effing around. Like if you're ju- doing little dances about Kubernetes right now, you're totally probably wasting someone's time, right? Because you're gonna try to get that thing and build, you know, a Cloud Foundry-like thing on top and call it your own, and has a lot more experience in that higher level of, of the stack and the benefits of that thing. And for me, I'm still living in this world a little, little bit low and saying I'm not yet ready um, to shift focus to, you know, the end game. The end game to me is that I don't care. Unikernels, VMs, containers, I have an app. It's in this bundle. Run it
0: and make it work. I, I think it's worth, it's worth pointing out there's some inherent stratification of, of all these personalities and, and what they're going to care about. So, like, at that top-level application developer mindset, like, I just want Heroku. Like, I don't care if it is Heroku or whatever. It could be Cloud Foundry. It could be Kubernetes underneath, like, whatever. Like, I want to I want to push a button, the easy button. I want the thing to work, and I want it to work, you know, over and over, and, you know, if it has a problem, hopefully it restarts itself and the rest of that stuff. Um, there's an, another digression that, which might be fun to have around, like the 12-factor apps and then what I'm calling 12-factor ops, which is like the other side of that contract. Um, and, and that kind of is how I'm framing this notion of opinions. But,
1: And that's, that's actually related to something Kelsey just wrote a really good blog post about this whole 12-fractured apps thing. It's like we're, we're all realizing that, hey, there's a lot of things we still have to worry about here.
0: Yeah, and
2: I think a lot of times we've neglected things because we know that there's humans involved and they will look at logs and error messages and repair the system, right? We still have a, we still have a lot of that assumption built in just in the people part of the organization. Like, oh, I'm not going to spend an extra two hours thinking about how my application starts. You know what? Just do the basics and then Bob over there or Julie will take a look at the logs and do the needful
0: I mean that kind of goes back, depending on where you uh, where you live, on the threshold of pain that your organization is willing to uh, to suffer. But but the the point I was trying to I started making a moment ago is it's like the people that are writing those apps at the top they don't want to care about what's underneath it. But it doesn't mean that there's not going to be some kernel developers at the bottom, and that there's not going to be some platform developers in the middle. And like each one of those layers definitely has responsibilities and passions about stuff that they're working on and they're they're going to care about about their layer
1: yeah that's that 12 factor ops thing that you've been talking about makes so much sense to me just because if in the 12 factor um you know manifesto the the talk of you know with the, the heroku propaganda that says you should definitely log in this way and it's like yes asterisk 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 like Yes, unless that's going to totally eat up all the available memory and, you know, everything is going to be dealt with terribly by Docker or whatever. Like, there are – someone is going to have to deal with whatever it is that you, the 12-factor app is doing.
0: Well, I think my point there is that if you go through each of the 12 factors in the 12factor.net um, and read each of them, they kind of imply that there's something else that exists that like does a bunch of stuff to make this app work, right? Like that just so whatever whatever's going to fulfill that contract, whatever's going to make the other side of that thing happen, better exist. If you're going to have your your application configured by things that are injected into the environment variables, there better be something that does that. That's all I'm saying.
1: Even if that something is uh, Julie.
0: Yeah, I mean your your platform. That's the point I've been trying to get people like. It it, kind of makes me laugh when people are like, we don't need a platform anymore, we have Docker. It's like, well, that's adorable. Um, But if you kind of logically unroll that back to whatever existed before Heroku came and people started talking about platform as a service, how did you deploy things before there was platform as a service? What is that thing that if you take away the quote-unquote as a service exists, allows you to deploy things, right? Like, let's have a conversation about these capabilities. And so your platform... Might be Julie, because it's not ops guys, it's the ops girl um, running do it five sh over and over in a for loop or whatever, uh, or, or it might be something like Heroku or it might be something in the middle. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of configuration management tools that, that I and other people have used to deploy software.
1: So if we're if we're we're coming up on time, we don't have infinite time here, unfortunately. I always want these discussions to go longer than they do, but um, I'm going to ask both of you to be prescriptive for just a minute. And I know you cannot answer what the right answer for everyone's use case is, since you don't know what their use case is. But for people who are trying to make decisions and have all these ideas swirling around in their minds about how they definitely need to get them some, you know, stuff from the shopping list, they need some Kubernetes and some Docker and maybe some platform, or maybe the Docker is the platform. Like, what, how do people choose?
2: Like, what should people do? Yeah, so I'll start, like, so I've I've done this in a lot of cases where, you know, sometimes I'll tell them, hey, you should use Kubernetes or you should just stick to what you're doing. Um, and a lot of times I will just say, look, could we just draw what you do to be or how does your organization work? It's like, well, there's some people write some code, they check it in, we have this language and, you know, this is what we want to happen. And usually you find a little bit about the scale that they want to do it in. And a lot of times you would just say, look, here's that I know will help you kind of do these parts i know of no tool that does everything right so here's based on my experience like look you need some of this you need some of that and here's a part you're going to have to build if you went this route i ended building that special part this way because we wanted some thing we believe is important to us and i just think it's really sitting down and saying before you go and watch the youtube videos and visit all the sites just kind of go through and write sketch it out on and you're willing to do the missing piece, right? Are you willing to sit down and own that part that you're going to have to write yourself? If the answer is yeah, then that's probably the platform for you, but you got to know what you're getting into, right? People get into this halfway, hey, we're going to, like what? When did you ever sit down and say that that's part of the thing you wanted to do? So if you just take the tools away for a moment and have people whiteboard it out a little bit, key things fall out of that. And I think you lead people in the right direction based on what they're
0: that, that makes a lot of sense. The the thing I would take away from what Kelsey just said, which, I mean, I think we have this theme throughout the discussion is that you have some context and that you should, you should work out what you're actually trying to accomplish and then back into a solution rather than, than deciding the solution and then working forward. And that if you, if you actually are, and that will force you to revisit a bunch of assumptions that I don't think all people do a very good job of articulating that will tend to lead you to better solutions. The other thing that I think is worth, I mean, I kind of made this point earlier, but it's like, think about the architectures that you're building and how automatable they are as much as whatever you're you're trying to to do. Like there's, there's no great way to automate certain types of technology right now, certain types of architectures. There's, you know, the example I've been you know, giving people when I talk about this is if, if your goal is to actually minimize the the mean time to recover your application, your service, and you've got some sort of you know order dependent, stateful process to get it installed and running in the first place. And let's say that takes you know X amount of steps and they have to be done in this order, and that gives you some number of time, you know, X, Y minutes, whatever, then that's the lower bound for how fast you can recover. And it's going to be actually longer than that because that's that's how fast you could get that thing running if you know what state it is and you're starting from a clean state. What you actually have to do when you recover those kinds of architectures is you have to figure out what state you're in. You have to unwind everything back to the thing, the beginning, and then build it back up in order to get to to run again. And if you're if you know you have to do that every time you install it, that's that's now your lower bound. So if you can think of ways to eliminate those steps to get things where they're you know, more managed as stateful processes that could be you know, arbitrarily moved around, uh, that you've separated your state from your statelessness, and that you're going to manage those things um, differently with, with whatever the kind of proper care and feeding is for each one, then it gives you a lot more power and flexibility with respect to the choices that you make with automation. Um, and you're going to get a lot of those benefits, regardless of whatever those choices are for the automation, just from changing the architecture.
1: No, that that makes a lot of sense. And um Kelsey uh dropped off and was breaking up a little bit at the end there, but I think what I heard him saying is similar to what you were just saying, which is you have to figure out um your your map, your territory. You know, you have to figure out what you have before you can make any kind of valid choices at all about you, where you're going.
0: You can't build anything until you call Simon Wardley.
1: <laughs> that's what I that's where I was going with this. <laughs> Yeah. Is, is yeah. that accurate, Kelsey? Is that, is that the direction you were going, is
2: figure yeah. out what you have? Exactly. And also, like, at some point, people need to get over the hump over change. Like, there's this thing that kind of kills me a little bit. Like, you'll talk to a person, like, if, you're, if your role is to write code and develop, I think there should be things that you're willing to change to, to adopt better ways of doing things, right? Like the simple blog post with 12 fractured apps. Just recheck the database, right? Like it may not be there to reduce some of the complexity Andrew was bringing up around this ordered thing to make the lower bounds very complex. Just what can you do? You may have to change some code. And I get it. Everyone can't change code. You know, there's people that don't work there anymore, so now you're just babysitting this thing until you go out of business. But if that's not your situation, you really need to figure out some way of taking responsibility of updating things to match Uh, Or or to reduce complexity in general, like that needs to be a thing that's on the table. It's often off the table and people have to build workarounds going forward. And I think that is just crazy at this point.
0: Here's another thing I would add, um, especially in this context of orchestration and, and some of the stuff that's going on. First of all, like the orchestration and the code and the artifacts, like there's this whole pipeline of stuff that has to be, you know, the interface with human beings and ticket trackers and source code and all that is is a, is still closer to an art than a science you know certainly people are kind of converging on on some sort of de facto standards but i don't think it's a totally solved problem but but then if you if you look at all of this and you know kelsey working at google right now but if you think about all these projects that you see out there like the mesos is out there kubernetes is out there cloud foundry is out there they all kind of have like what I'll call the, the the Google diaspora. There's like there's like this these ideas that came from uh, people that use Borg and and like some of these other internal Google systems. And if you go read the Borg paper, there's a bunch of interesting stuff about scheduling and orchestration and the rest of that. And then there's there's this one sentence that I think is actually I think it's maybe the most important sentence in the whole paper, but I don't think most people pick it up as as such. And that is a sentence that says that everything that ran on Borg, for the most part, the proponents of things that ran on Borg have an embedded web server that broadcasts metrics about the health of the application. Like, if you just internalize that and you build applications that have some idea of their own health and are telling you about their health, then you'll start to get tons of benefits outside of whatever you choose to do with your automation.
2: And that's the main point too around, you have to be willing to write some code, right? So before doing this, people did this with external Nagios pokes and probes. you know what I mean? Like your app doesn't know anything or report anything. People just build tooling around the app and probe it from the outside. It's like over time we know that those probes need to happen for all apps. How come there's not standard things we do just like listening on a port, right? This should just become a standard thing you do as a person that writes code for a living or a web server for a living.
0: So this is also, this kind of feeds into some of the stuff that we talk about um, from a Pivotal perspective, but I think it's useful to frame it when you look at all the other frameworks, and that is this what we're calling like the cloud-native um, layers. And so you have this cloud-native orchestration in the middle with the containers and and you know restarting processes and the rest of that stuff. Um, but then above that, we we have discussions around the sort of cloud-native application frameworks. And if you look at the way that that uh, Spring Boot in particular, works that it, it comes with a lot of these embedded metrics built into the built into the framework, and you don't need to use Spring because you know maybe you don't like Java. But if you go look at those patterns, the, the other thing that comes with is all the uh, Netflix open source, um, you know whatever like resilient uh, high uh, whatever circuit breakers. Like there's a long list of things that you get for free out of the box with with Netflix open source right now. But, but taking those patterns, like if you don't have those patterns in in your architecture at your disposal as sort of like components and Lego bricks that you can play with as a developer, then you don't really understand what, what this kind of next wave uh, of cloud-native architecture is actually enabling.
2: You know it's funny? When New Relic came out maybe, what is it, five or six years ago, you would just import this one package, and then your app, Started just to broadcast all these metrics
0: back, when it, was, like, back when it was all Ruby, right? Like, you right? Just like, yeah,
2: exactly You just import this thing and I think that's what you're talking about We need like live how to do this right you import live how to do this and then it's just like look These are the things you just can't compromise on in modern systems We've learned too much in 30 years no more excuses
0: Just out of the box like you should be able to get basic things about any of the nodes that are in the thing you know whatever kind of metrics around their own requests, blah, 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 like all that stuff, put it on a dashboard, start to make decisions.
1: Hopefully an auto generating dashboard.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, scientific visualization is like another thing like that can be its own hour long conversation. Like what do you actually graph? That, that's a very, that's a fascinating um, conversation as well.
1: We'll have to, we'll have to have an episode about that at some point. Um, I do know some people who are doing cool stuff in this space. Uh, I think both of you know Charity Majors, right? And uh, she and some other folks um, who, uh, I think some of them were at Facebook with her, are doing a, a new startup right exactly in that space. Oh, really? Yeah. What's it called? Hound. Hound. Yeah. It's like hound.sh, I think. So it's, it's all about, I think what the way she put it is she does not want to ever make another dashboard.
0: <laughs> I, I miss, I missed the memo. There's some other stuff going on. I mean, obviously, like the Datadog stuff, you know, that's so a sponsor of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, we're using some of their stuff right now um, that gives some of these abilities – there's also like um, Anil Signal Fuse or whatever. Yeah,
1: Signal FX.
0: Signal Signal FX. That's what we call see, them. We, yeah.
1: we know all these people, so we'll have to get them on and do an episode about that. that. Be That'll be another
0: episode. Just to see, like, <laughs> I don't know. I used to I used to TA a scientific visualization class, and the types of things that you can encode and like create, and, and also the types of optical illusions or the things you can obscure are kind of fascinating.
1: <laughs> so instead of lying with stats, you can lie with graphs. Lie with lying, your visualizations.
0: W- lying with graphs with Andrew Clay Schaefer. <laughs>
1: well, in any event, so let's let's get a tiny bit of a uh, of magic eight ball action here. A little bit of prophecy. What do each of you think is coming next, uh, Schaefer, and then and then Kelsey? What's what's coming next in this space?
0: What's coming next? Mm-hmm. I I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm if I'm up for the challenge of, of making a, a real strong prophecy here. Trends, I feel like, stuff you see happening. I mean, I, so I think, like, there, there's different timelines and thresholds. I think that you're going to see a massive adoption of cloud across a bunch of different verticals in the enterprise. I think you're going to see a lot of them go to um, to use these technologies. I think you're going to see a lot of failures. I think you're going to see a lot of struggle as their as their adoption is – not always um, 100% enlightened and educated, and that that's regardless of the of the tools that they pick. And I think the way I frame that, and this is this is a conversation I've had more than once. You know, particularly around the the namesake of the of the podcast, where someone someone asks you to come help them because they want the DevOps, right? Like we want to get the <laughs> DevOps, and then and then you go there and you look at everything that they're doing, and you try to you know in earnest give them some analysis of of what you think would help them be better at, at accomplishing the goals that they have. And after that conversation and you've articulated, you know, things that you thought were sensible based on your context and framing, they say, well, what we really wanted was some way to do DevOps without changing anything. Is there some way you can help <laughs> us with that? And at that point you're just like, well, you should just use, puppet whatever like it doesn't matter like you're you're not actually trying to solve this problem like you have so many entrenched political issues that you got to work through before you're ready to to be high performing in this regard that like I can't help you unless you want to just make me the CTO right now like
1: (laughs) that's well that is something that would probably make their lives very entertaining I'm enjoying working with you at Pivotal so (laughs) well there you are So what do you think, Kelsey?
0: So I think
2: uh, people will be forced into this um, outsourcing of their compute infrastructure because of things outside of their control. So five years ago, you could say it was easy to say, make that decision based on how you felt. Like, hey, we're doing this in our own data center. We're just going to replicate that in the cloud. And that's what most people have been doing with a bunch of virtual machines and one-to-one mappings, firewall rules, you know, all the little things you did in your data center, you did in the cloud. And I think, and I, you know, I've talked to a number of people where they're starting to get so much data because they wanna process everything or there's new services that are coming out that require machine learning, that require storage of petabytes of data. Now, this is the point where is now beyond your control. right? If I go to your team and say, look, we're gonna store a petabyte of data per day and we have no money to buy a, you know, or SAN that can hold that much data. Oh, and I also want it to be globally available. At this point, you start to push the boundaries of what people can make up or assume or have, you know, this naive confidence that they can do it themselves. That's the point where you get people to say, you know what, to be honest with you, there's no one to buy one of those from. Like, we we really reached the bounds of scale. We, we can't get that. We can't get that internet connection.
0: So, I, I mean, in some sense, I summarize this by saying that you're going to see mass adoption of, of the cloud infrastructure. And, and I think that, yeah, I agree 100%. Like, basically, you start to do some napkin scribbling of, like, what some of these IoT projects are going to generate from data perspective. Like, even a moderate, you know, not ambitious project, like, the types of, of time series data that you're going to generate and need to store and analyze, like, just explodes, right? And, like, you're not going to build that. Exactly,
2: and I, and I think that is what's happening now. So I think in the, in the in like the one or two year span, you'll see more and more of these use cases being the reason why not because they saw the light eventually, is because they were almost forced into it, which is different than what we saw five years ago, which is what I think will be different now. And then what that platform will be, I think there will be like six or seven of those things. There won't be just one, right? There'll be many and they will start to mature and actually work.
0: I, I want to add one thing that goes back to something that I said earlier, and that is, you know, when I made this point that, that I feel like DevOps, microservices, continuous delivery, platforms, all really one phenomena, and that, you know, the high-performing organizations kind of have uh, very similar characteristics in this regard, the point I would want to make to, to reinforce what Kelsey just said is that they didn't just set out to, to do DevOps. That wasn't, the, that wasn't their problem. There was actually Darwinian force. It was, it was evolution that forced them. You couldn't survive, like you couldn't deliver those types of services without those types of solutions. So when you see the people that are, you know, quote-unquote healthy, quote-unquote with whatever their you know, pain-inducing process is, it's because they haven't reached any sort of Darwinian force that will eliminate them if they don't change their behavior. Yep. So
2: that, that's, that's my call for going forward is that, and then I think at this point, people will feel like these platforms, cloud offerings are actually beneficial because now they actually see why they need to exist if, if it wasn't clear before. And I think that will probably speed up a lot of things, right? You'll see how many new players get into the space, new offerings. You know, if you think about these machine learning APIs, right, those offerings are targeted in a lot of cases at companies that are building self-driving cars. I don't have 10 years to train my algorithms. There is no way you guys are gonna do this from scratch. I'm not waiting 10 years for you guys to get done with this. So you're gonna start to see where people are pushing to this and then it makes you feel happy, right? You use them and you're immediately 10 years into the future and now you actually feel as satisfied as getting an internet connection.
1: Nice, so this is, this is a really exciting conversation and if people wanna have more of these conversations with you two folks, Um, where can they uh, find you in the near to distant future? Upcoming conferences, perhaps?
2: Oh, so there's tons of meetups that i like to show up at, but some of the big conferences this year will be uh, Craft, OzCon, which is in Austin this year, which I'm a chair of, so I hope to see everyone there. (laughs) Um, And, you know, various conferences. I'm in Europe quite a bit, and I'll be talking about not just containers, but what's beyond that going forward.
1: Nice, and uh, how about you, Andrew?
0: I think we'll all be at craft. Um, yeah. So
1: if, if you would like to see uh, Andrew or myself or Kelsey or many, many fine other folks craft uh, conf in Budapest, Hungary in uh, April.
0: H- highly likely that we're all at OSCON. Um, what else? I, I th- I'm going to try not to travel till after March because my wife's uh, taking her medical board, so she asked me to uh, shut it down a little bit. So I'm going to probably be doing a lot of local stuff and maybe writing a little bit more. Um, The easiest way to get my attention if you want to have conversations anytime is is a little idea on Twitter. Um, Other than that, like, if you send me an email, I might respond eventually, but I'm 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 going to go with,
1: if you send him an email and he responds, you will be surprised. It happened to me today. It was amazing. He responded via email. I thought he was going to respond on Slack or Twitter.
2: (laughs) And I just opened up DMs from anyone, which has been awesome because I'm getting people now engaging in longer form conversation. And I didn't know how much of a change that meant, but it is actually very powerful to give people a private space to have a public conversation, if that makes sense.
1: You are incredibly brave and I salute you. I will absolutely never be doing that. I'm assuming I use the block button on Twitter more than either of you. I,
0: I never block anyone yeah I don't block people Yeah. You know.
1: sometimes people just want to keep talking and that's okay but I don't want to keep listening
0: oh I didn't say I listen to everyone <laughs> just don't block them
1: I just don't want my mentions to be overtaken absolutely Um, but yes uh, I will be at OSCON I will actually be talking about managing distributed systems with Bosch at OSCON which will be fun and uh I, I gotta ask. I know there's gonna be a Kubernetes workshop, but Kelsey, you're the chair now. Do, do you have to pass off the baton? Does somebody else have to teach it now?
2: Yes, yeah, so I'm gonna help uh, make on some really good material. So like advanced Kubernetes stuff, where we go into design patterns when you do have a tool like that, and looking beyond it, right? So I think people are ready for the next phase. Like to be honest, I come to the conclusion most people do not want to run it themselves. It's a fallacy. I think people really want to know what to do next. And that's what we're going to focus on.
1: So, is that one actually going to be taught by you?
2: Uh, it will have a lot of Kelsey sauce on it.
1: All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose that I just I'm just going to say right now that if you are teaching anything which I don't, you'll have time for. Do not schedule me at the same time as that because I want to go to that. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, I think that that pretty much wraps it up. Uh, we have a newsletter. ArrestedDevOps.com slash banana stand. It's the best way to know about upcoming podcast episodes and cool news with DevOps. We also have an iPhone app if you dig that kind of thing. You can download it for free at ArrestedDevOps.com slash iPhone. Thanks to our sponsors. Be sure to visit them at ArrestedDevOps.com slash 10th Magnitude and ArrestedDevOps.com slash Datadog. Thanks to Kelsey and Andrew for joining us. It was great having you guys.
0: Happy New Year. Awesome. Thank you. My my goal for 2016 is to be more like Kelsey Hightower.
2: <laughs> Me too.
0: <laughs> Good luck. That's
1: pretty much everyone's New Year's resolution, I'm pretty sure. Um, but, and loyal listeners, if you enjoy Arrested DevOps, we'd appreciate it if you'd visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash iTunes and leave us a review in the iTunes store. We would love to know what you thought of this episode. Please leave us comments at ArrestedDevOps.com slash platforms, which doesn't exist yet, but it will at some point when I have any time whatsoever. Be sure to check us out at ArrestedDevOps.com or at ArrestedDevOps on Twitter. We're always happy to get your input, ideas, or feedback at shows at ArrestedDevOps.com, which Matt will totally read. Um, Because email. Uh, Please let us know any ideas you have for future episodes. I'm Bridget at Bridget Crumhout. We're Arrested DevOps. And remember, there's always DevOps in the banana stand.